Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that prayer supplication. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans in chapter 5. We'll be looking at that as one of our primary texts this morning. Sunday before last, I launched into a series on heaven uh, using Colossians chapter 3 and reminded us the Apostle Paul's admonition to early believers and to us that we have a responsibility, even while here on earth, we should be heavenly minded and have our minds on things above where Christ is and the fact that we are in Christ. And so in the upcoming weeks when I'll be preaching, you'll be, we'll be dealing with the subject of heaven. But before we get to heaven, before we get to heaven, we have to first of all, and before we, we can examine the wondrous biblical uh, insights given to us in the Word of God and have our spirits enlightened and inspired and uplifted on this uh, wonderful subject and new heights of excitement, we first must deal with death. And after all, death is the gateway to the life after. And I realize that the vast majority of people, including people from other cultures, don't really enjoy talking about the subject of death, and not many preachers like to get up in the pulpit and preach a sermon on the subject of death. But But you understand, it has a very vital role to play in the subject of heaven. It's interesting to hear people's reactions to the whole subject of death. Just give you an example here, some people's attitudes that I came across. You may recall Larry King, famous uh, reporter with CNN or or, uh, commentator with CNN. He said, I quote, my biggest fear is death because I don't think I'm going anywhere. George Burns, that cigar-wielding comedian, he said, I quote, I don't believe in death. I thought uh, George B. Shaw said very straightforwardly, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. That's a lot of insight there. I like this from Dr. L. Nelson Bell, Ruth Bell Graham's father missionary father. He was a medical missionary. He wisely observed, only those who are prepared to die are really prepared to live. Only those who are prepared to die are really prepared to live. And so as we examine the subject and and look at the Word of God together, I'll be going through several passages of Scripture. If you're making notes, the first subject I want to cover, the first heading we'll look at is the place of death. And... um, and first of all, I want to just take us back to Genesis, the creation, the very beginning of time, and the origin of, of all of the creation. And I want to point out something, and that is the absence of death from God's original creation. You may recall in chapter 1 of Genesis, as God was creating in those first six days, and at the end of that sixth day in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God looked at all that He had created, and He said, it is very good. It is very good. This is after he created, of course, the crown of creation, humankind. But also point out that in the original creation, there was no death. All of mankind, Adam and Eve at that point, all of the creatures, all of the plant life, all the creatures of the sea, the land, there was only life. There was only life. But as we know, as we read further in the Genesis account in chapter 2, that God designed the potential for death, even before it existed. 
And there in Genesis in chapter 2, in verse 15, I thought it was interesting that God is giving a warning to Adam there in that perfect scenario of the Garden of Eden. Listen to the words of God as He's warning Adam. Then the Lord God, in verse 15, chapter 2, Genesis, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. First time death is mentioned. There in that setting. Though death was absent from God's original creation, we understand that through man's sinful disobedience to God, sin and subsequently death came into creation and had a lasting, perpetual impact upon all of humanity. As we'll see as we go back now to the New Testament and look at Romans in chapter 5. And I think as Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, of course all of Romans chapter 5 deals with this subject, but, but as you look at the words of the Apostle Paul, it calls to my mind the words of the, of the title of that famous poem by Milton, Paradise Lost. Paradise was lost. The perfection of creation was lost and, and, and the essence of life was lost when sin entered the world and subsequent to, to that, death entered the world. Paradise was lost. Listen to what Paul says. Read along with me there in Romans chapter 5. And look at the significance of the decision of Adam. One man's decision. One man's sin, disobedience of God, would impact in a fatal way all of humanity up to this day. But also pick out how Paul points out that it is through one God-man that God would rectify the problem. That God would reverse the awful effect of death on man, sin on man. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. De nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Paul saying basically, even though there was no law in existence during the time of Adam and afterwards all the way to Moses, death still took its toll on people because of sin. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, speaking of Christ, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one man who sinned, or the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift, talking about salvation, talking about God's grace, talking about God's mercy, talking about the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, a righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, and that is the obedience of Jesus Christ to go to the cross, to shed his blood, to pay the price for the propitiation of our sins, his obedience, many will be made righteous. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Amen. Grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the original man, Adam, sin entered the world. And sin's cursed consequence, death, followed right on its heels. So it's interesting to note that what Paul is saying here is that Adam's rebellion against God and his sin brought into the whole human race the awful penalty of sin, which is eternal death. In Romans, in chapter 8, verse 19, Paul pointed out something that's also worth noting. Not only did man's sin bring death and corruption into the world, not only did it affect man, but man's original sin brought death to all of creation. All of creation, all of the animals, land, sea, and air, all of the plant life, all of, cre- all of living creation was brought under the curse of sin and death. Listen to verse 19 where Paul says, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Look at verse 22 there in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. All of creation suffers as a result of that. You might say that death is no respecter of people. It affects the rich and the poor, the famous and the insignificant. It affects people of all cultures, every walk of life. I like what David said, going back to Psalm 39. Listen to his words there, talking about the universality of of death and the non-discriminating factor of death, if you will, a characteristic of death. Listen to what David said in Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths. In other words, very brief. And my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Death doesn't discriminate. It affects everybody. Life is short, the Bible says. James says in chapter 4, verses 14. James 
the apostle says, life is a, like a vapor. It's here, then it's gone. Just like that. As I think about how countless thousands of individuals, even this past week, stepped out into eternity. Some of them victims of war, some of them victims of disease, some of them victims of natural disasters, some of them victims of tragic accidents, including a top-notch Blue Angels pilot who went down with his plane in Tennessee. You read that or heard of that, I'm sure, how tragic that was. Eight soldiers from Fort Hood, Texas, their vehicles swept away in the torrential floods, perished just like that. I read just, uh, just yesterday the world-famous champion boxer Muhammad Ali, now gone into eternity. You see, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man. Which man? Every man. Every person. Everyone has a date with death. It's not a matter of if you die, it's a matter of when you die and being prepared. And knowing that reality and knowing what God's Word teaches about that reality. And by the way, the Bible allows no, no exceptions for reincarnation or coming back to this world and living again. There are very few scriptural ex exemptions, if you will, to the rule of death. I think about in Genesis in chapter 5, in verse 23 and 24, one of God's most faithful servants, a man by the name of Enoch, lived 350 years. He walked with God, was the, script, the description the Bible says. He walked with God. He was a godly man. He walked with God. And then it just says that he was not. God took him. He didn't even die. And, and so Enoch didn't experience death. God worked that out and God can do all things. Don't ask me to explain it. And then again in the Old Testament in 2 Kings in chapter 2 verse 11 we're told that the, that great prophet of old, Elijah, when he reached the end of his ministry and preaching and, and, and standing for God and proclaiming the word of God and warning against the evils of, of a rebellious nation, when, when the end of his ministry arrived we're told that he didn't die. That God sent fiery chariots from heaven and swept down and, and gathered Elijah up. He was the next exception to the rule of death, if you will. The other exception pertains to the New Testament. It's that time period we know of as the rapture of the church. Just prior to the onset of that dark and violent and destructive, terrifying period. When we know as the great tribulation described in Revelation chapter 6 verse 18. The, or, chapter 6 through chapter 18 where holy God pours out his wrath upon rebellious wicked mankind and we're told that just prior to that that, that Christ will rapture from this world those who are his and who the church of Christ we find that alluded to in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3 but probably most or best described by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. Verse 13. First Thess that's the tongue twisted. Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who, do, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. That's those who had died previously. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord 
will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is the rapture. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Not dying. And thus we, will, we shall always be with the Lord forever. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The Apostle Paul speaks more specifically of that transformation, that, that radical transformation that comes over those believers who are raptured by the Lord out of this world without dying. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, in verses 50 through 54. He talks about how immortality or mortality takes on immortality. That which is temporal becomes eternal and that happens instantaneously so much so Paul describes it as in the twinkling of an eye. But those are the only exceptions that the scripture allows to the rule of death. Everyone else faces death. So that's the place of death in God's eternal scheme, if you will, God's eternal plan. But let's talk now briefly about the power of death. We saw in Genesis chapter 2, God made it very clear. Adam, there is a powerful, deadly consequence to disobeying me. And ladies and gentlemen, the consequence of sin is still the same. It is death. And God warned mankind and has warned mankind down through the ages. Paul said in the text that we just read from Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because of this. So as we talk about the power of death, understand that in the Bible, the word death usually denotes separation in, in a variety of ways. Whether it's separation of loved ones from loved ones, or the soul from the body, or, you know, it's, it entails separation. James in chapter 2 and verse 26 in his epistle says, the body without the spirit is death. When we talk about the power of death, we look at three aspects of it. First of all, spiritual death. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul over in Ephesians in chapter 2. He describes force. Listen to what he says there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ladies and gentlemen, that's you and me. That's every one of us before we came to Christ, before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and received the wonderful gift of eternal life. Paul says, you were in your trespasses and sins, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience. So the power, the, the, the spiritual death is, is, is... We live physically, you can be alive and be dead. I think about Dr. Charles Stanley, Pastor... First Baptist in Atlanta, and oftentimes he would speak about people who are living, but they're actually dead. Walking dead men, if you will. Now that sounds like something science fiction would throw at us. But listen to what Paul describes. He goes on to talk about those who are spiritually dead. He talks about the unregenerate. He talks about the, quote, Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind. Further there in Ephesians in chapter 4, listen to what he says in verse 18. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That was you and me at one time. 
You and I, before Christ, before putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, any of our family, any of our friends, co-workers, anyone that you know who does not truly follow Jesus Christ is this person. They are walking in spiritual darkness, whether they realize it or not. They are, their heart is beating, their brain is working. They are physically alive, but in God's eyes, they are spiritually dead. The, eye, the spiritual eyes have been darkened. And when the first man and first woman committed sin, they died spiritually. God, by His mercy, chose to allow Adam and Eve to live physically after that. That they might have offspring, that God's plan might continue. But they had died spiritually. The wonderful communion with God that they enjoyed, the fellowship they enjoyed with God, the close personal fellowship and relationship they had with God spiritually was dead. And so that's spiritual death. But then physical death. And I, that's nothing new. The Bible says, as I pointed out in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die. And that's a fact. Every person will. Thanatology is the study of the science of death. And no doubt there have been many scientists and doctors and, 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 and all kinds of great minds studying and debating about what constitutes death. They come up with terms like this clinical death. When all vital signs appear to be failing or have failed, or then they have that what they call sure death or brain death, a death when there's no brainwave activity, and so they said, well, they're brain dead. There have been documented cases of people who have been revived after having been declared clinically dead. There are a number of cases that have been reported. But that's nothing new. You go back to the Bible and you find examples of people who were dead and then by God's power brought back to life. I think I counted about ten such cases where people were raised from the dead. And I think you know about the story of Lazarus. And certainly that is one of the great examples. God can do anything that He wants to. He can allow a person who has physically died or to, to come back to physical life. But I want to remind you of something. Every one of those people that have come back to life, that have been revived, if you will, are still subject to death. Every one of them died eventually sub and submitted to the power of death. The psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 10 says, The days of our lives, sounds almost like a soap opera, doesn't it? <laughs> the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80. Of course, with the advancements in science and medicine and technology, that might be bumped up more now to 90 and 100. Because it's not unusual to hear about centurions now that are living to be a hundred years of old. And so, you know, the fact is, even though man can extend life, the fact is, death still prevails and has power. In my 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've stood by the deathbed of many. I've stood by the deathbed of a hundred-year-old saint who was very ready to leave this world and go home to be with the Lord. Very excited about the idea of being re reunited with family and friends. And yet, also, I've stood by the incubator of an infant, just hours old, and watched as, there, as life ebbed away from that little tiny body. Listen, having per perfect health is no guarantee that you'll live a long time. Now, I'm a, I'm a firm encourager of people taking care of yourself. And, 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 be, and trying to be healthy. I'm nervous because my wife is looking at me and my daughter-in-law and they're big proponents of nutrition and health. And So I'm a big, hey, I'm on the side of health. 
But having great health, having perfect health, seemingly perfect health, is no guarantee of longevity. Consider the case of Bruce Lee, that martial arts expert, who was able to do 60 one-arm pull-ups. I, I can do between one and two. <laughs> 60 one-arm pull-ups, picture perfect health. Yet at the age of 32, fell into a coma and died very suddenly. You've no doubt heard the expression, there are two things that everybody experiences in this world. Two things people have to do, pay taxes and die. That's the certainty of the power of death over us physically. As, as, as horrible as death can be, and I realize you're thinking, please preacher, get this message over with. Might be making some folks nervous. But, but the fact is, to understand and to appreciate the whole plan that God has pertaining to heaven, we have to understand the role that death plays. And, and I realize there's nothing about death in and of itself, spiritual death or physical death that, that is charming or enamoring. We, we, we dread it. To, there are many people who live in fear of death. But, but might I say this? Brother, sister, friend, neighbor, let me tell you something. As fearful as death in and of itself may appear, there is yet another death that you need to be horrified of. And even Jesus said so. Even the Son of God warned of this. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body he says that, you know, you don't have to make your number one fear those who can shoot you, stab you, or smother you, or whatever. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And here we're talking about what is called eternal death. This is the second death. And the person who dies physically and who at that point is spiritually dead. In other words, does not have a relationship with God and Jesus Christ. They're going to die again. In a worse way. Because this eternal death is the ultimate horror of every human being. Because according to the scriptures, they find themselves eternally separated from the love of God. God's love, God's mercy, God's goodness, God's grace, God's blessings forever and ever and ever according to the Scriptures. And Jesus warns of this. We see this described by Jesus in Luke's Gospel chapter 16 in that popular parable we know of as Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was a humble we seemingly godly man, but very humble, poor, a beggar. And yet, in contrast, there was a rich man who, according to the, the scenario of that story, was obviously not a believer of God, a respecter of God. Lazarus died, we're told, and was escorted by angels into the bosom of Abraham. Whereas, in contrast, that rich man who rejected God was immediately escorted into, or not escorted, he found himself, woke up 
in a horrendous, terrible, terrible, tormenting place called Hades, begging for relief, to which there was none. You see, the Bible has been very clear. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 23, the penalty of sin is death. But even there, Paul's not talking about when your heart stops beating, your brain waves cease, and you stop living physically. He's not even talking about just the fact that you are separated from, from, from the Lord in a relationship spiritually, that you're spiritual. He's talking about the ultimate separation from God and any semblance of God's goodness for eternity. Which brings us to the final point I'd like to have you examine with me, and that is the purpose of death. God is a God of purpose and design. And everything that, that confines itself into the, 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 the picture of the Bible is, is there by design, by purpose. What is the purpose of death? Number one is to escort or to usher some, that's those who have rejected Christ, and I would point out, according to the teachings of Jesus, that will be the vast majority of the people that will walk the face of the earth. That's why Jesus says, narrow is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. But broad and, and vastly populated, if you will. Many are going by that broad way that leads to destruction. So uh, one of the purposes of death is to usher many into eternal punishment. And this is what the scripture teaches. We saw that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because for that rich man there was no hope. There was no second chances. There was no soul sleep. There was no purgatory. Because the state in which he found himself he would exist in forever and ever and ever. No relief whatsoever. But I don't think there's a more vivid description of that that ultimate separation than what we find in Revelation chapter 20, the last book of the Bible, near the end of that book, chapter 20, verse 11, known as the great white throne. You what you're talking about seeing the second death played out? Listen. John describes as God gives, Jesus gives him this vision. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him, Christ, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So you see, even those who have died, even those who have died and have been waiting in temporary hold of Hades in torment, even for up until now, for thousands of years, will find themselves instantaneously re reunited with their body to stand before the King of Kings, the judge of all of humanity, and they will hear the final sentence upon their soul. And that's what John is describing here. Those who have been brought up from the sea, from death and Hades. And they were judged, each one according to his works. In verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is future. There is coming a time when every human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth, who is not a child of God, 
that has been raptured or by death has been taken into the presence of the Lord, every lost, unsaved, rebellious soul will be brought before the throne of Christ. And on that fateful, horrible day, they will hear Jesus say, Depart from me. I never knew you. And ladies and gentlemen, what comes next? I don't even think the human vocabulary has words to describe. You think of the most painful experience you've ever experienced. Just try to conjure up the most agonizing, painful experience you've ever had and then multiply that by infinity. And that's what happens to those who experience this horrible second death. But isn't it great to know Listen to go back to the text that we looked at Romans chapter 5 that what Paul is saying in stark contrast and first Paul is saying there in in, uh, in 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 Romans chapter 5 look at verse 17 for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ Jesus has provided victory over death. In Christ, His shed blood on the cross, we have the atonement of our sins, and death no longer has the power to separate us from God for eternity. I like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 54. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, the victory of the cross. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just as death is assigned to escort the lost, unregenerate soul to judgment, death escorts the people of God into the very eternal presence and the glory of God. That's why in Psalm 116, the psalmist could say, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Because, you see, the psalmist understood what awaited those that would experience death. You know, we think of the whole concept of of, of eternal life and the assurance of eternal life being a New Testament Phenomena, But listen to the words of some of the saints of the Old Testament, if you would. Listen to the words of Job, considered to be the oldest book of the Bible. Even way back in Job's day, thousands of years ago. Listen to the words of a man of faith in God. Though Job didn't understand the plan of redemption, he understood in his heart that his God would redeem him. Listen to what Job said in Job 19, 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at, the, at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job knew that. How? By faith. By his confidence that God would one day deliver him. But listen to what David said in Psalm 16. David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Listen, David knew fear. He understood fear, but David did not, or or he he understood death, but he didn't live in fear of death. 
That's why it could say in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David didn't know about the plan of redemption. He didn't know about Jesus dying on the cross. But he understood by faith that God had a way for his faithful that would bring them into eternity alive. He had no need to fear death. And of course the prophet Daniel also in Daniel chapter 12 talks about those who have died would be resurrected, some to live and some to eternal judgment. You understand that Jesus also preached this and taught this. You think about in, in John's gospel in chapter 11 when Jesus went to this town of Bethany to comfort Martha and Mary at the news of the death of their brother Lazarus who was a dear friend of Jesus. And, and, and as Jesus was comforting them, Jesus said to Martha, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, though he die, he will live. And he taught that to Martha and to Mary to give them hope. Jesus even imparted a word of hope to a dying thief on the cross. There in Luke's gospel in chapter 23, in verse 43, when, when the thief put his faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus said to that thief, This day you shall be with me in paradise. So you see, the Lord was given a word of hope even to his disciples in John chapter 14. Just prior to his own crucifixion, when Jesus understood how this was going to impact his own disciples, he told them, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you. That where I am, there you may be also. And, the, and where I go, you know in the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we, we don't know. Where are you going? How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to eternal life. But through me, the Apostle Paul understood the blessed hope that is ours, even in the face of death, when he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, uh, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we face problems in life. Yes, we, we face death, but we don't have to live in a spirit of fear. We can live with confidence like the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. There is no losing for the child of God, even in the face of death. And Paul says, the one man, the God man, Jesus just as one man's sin brought all this death into the world, it was one man's absolute obedience to the will of God and his love for lost humanity that led him to make the ultimate sacrifice on a cross that paid the price for our sins. And because of that, we rejoice even knowing that death comes our way. We have nothing to fear I was listening to some music, inspirational music, because I was preparing the message. And I, I oftentimes would come across this male vocal group. They sing beautifully. And in this song that was made popular years ago, I was listening to the lyrics and I thought, wow, how appropriate for God's people who are facing a world saturated in sin and destruction and, and, and death and disease to just know these very words. They, they were singing and it was resonating with what God was saying to me through His Word. They were singing these words in the chorus. Walk on through the storm, God's people, God's children. Walk on through the storm. Walk on through the night. Because He says, you'll never, never, never 
walk alone. David tells us, and you know this very well in Psalms 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. I say praise God. We're not a people who deny death. We don't deny the seriousness of diseases and and things that cause people to die and accidents and things like that. We understand the gravity of what it means for a person to die. And our heart breaks with others who've lost loved ones. But when we consider ourselves children of God, those who were dead in our trespasses but through Christ have been made alive, we know, we know that we know by faith that even when that day, when that hour, when that minute arrives, there's nothing to fear because Christ is with us. And He has paid it all. Amen? He has paid it all. Amen. Let's pray.